Hello, everyone. Welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ella Turen. And I'm Kathy Foley-Meyer, your other co-host. And today we have such a special treat for you. Uh, Usually we only have one guest, but today we have multiple guests with us. We have the crew from Brothers in Pen. We have Zoe Mullery, who is the creative writing teacher. And we have Troy Williams, as well as Watani Steiner with us today. And each of them are going to give us their perspective and their journey with creative writing, which is what they do the best. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with all three of you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Zoe, let's start with you. How did Brothers in Pen start? How did, uh, what's its origin story and how did you get involved with it? Brothers in Penn is actually a program of the William James Association, which um, puts arts in originally in, I think, all of the prisons in California until the early 2000s when there was a big budget cut and it got cut back to fewer prisons than that. But now it's growing again. And it's I don't know how many prisons it's in now, but William James Association has been doing arts in the prisons since the 70s. Um, And so I feel very fortunate to be a part of this program, getting to teach writing in the prisons. And so I've been at San Quentin since um, 1999, a really long time. Yeah. Wow. That is a long time. (laughs) And, and so, you know, I just, I started teaching creative writing there. And at some point we started making anthologies in the early 2000s. We started making anthologies in the class and, and there was just this kind of feeling that the class was not just a class because it's an ongoing group it's like a more like a writing workshop or like a writer's group and so there's kind of a, a long-term people are in the class for a long time sometimes like Watani was in the class for 13 years Troy was in for like 10 years I think or something and and so there's just a lot of camaraderie and trust that gets built up over the years as people hear each other's writing so there's just kind of a sense that, you know, we wanted a group name and a sense of, we kind of took a vote, people proposed different names and Brothers in Pen was the one that got voted on back in 2005. And that's just kind of what we've called the group ever since then. And we have anthologies that we put out and every year or so we have a public reading that we do where people are invited to come in from outside the prison and we do a literary reading in front of a big audience. And so it's just kind of our identity as a group of writers doing something together. And there's a change in who's in that group over the years, but there's kind of a core sense of a group identity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I first encountered Brothers in Pen because I got to come to one of your closing readings. And I just still remember being in the chapel and having all of these wonderful writers in the front of the room sharing their work. It was so powerful. And it was a mixture of storytelling and poetry and memoir, and there was some singing involved and theater. I mean, it really is creative writing um, at its core, like all forms of creative writing, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Watani and Troy, can you each talk about how you became involved with Brothers in Pen? I think I came in your class, Zoe, you said, I don't want you to say 15 years ago, 13 years ago. 2003, yeah. Well, I came in with one idea about how I wanted my memoir to unfold went into some uh, pushback from Zoe when I went into the class. Uh, let me just make it real briefly. When I when I started writing my memoir, I was writing my memoir out of uh, a sense of anger, an intentional 
purpose of trying to uh, correct the historical record. That was my original intention. And getting in a class and getting into uh, with Zoe, you know, if you have any creative writing teachers in your history, you'll know that they write these annoying little comments in the column. And this is what Zoe was doing. So for, I guess, the first year of my memoir, uh, we had this tug of war going on. I'm, you know, I'm want to know, you know, little white girl going to tell me how to write my story. And, you know, so we had, we had this pushback. Uh, but to make a long story short, in the process of my writing, I realized that what she was doing was getting me to peel back the layers of my story. And then gradually, my story started moving from my head into my heart and uh, sort of opened up a lot of doors for restorative justice and a whole bunch of other things. So Zoe, I I attribute Zoe as being uh, the person that was annoying, but also very helpful in getting my, uh, my story told. And she also introduced me to characters. You know, because when I write my story, I it's, it's my voice, it's my mindset. But she showed me how if I introduce characters in my story, then I also have to engage in a conversation or dialogue with those with that character. So that allows me to move away from my perspective and sort of broaden my perspective. So I brought in a lot of other aspects that I wouldn't have had if I just wrote my story without any relational connection other stories. So this is how I got in. It's been, and I've been working on my memoir ever since then, and I'm still working on it. We're still working on it. Yep. And Watani's story is incredible. So I cannot wait until this memoir comes out. I'm we waiting for it. You're putting, pressure, you're putting more pressure on me by adding that. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to use that against me. Oh, man. Put that pressure on right, I've been on it for a while. Mm-hmm. Troy's on it too. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thank you for the question. Thank you so much, Watani. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you, Troy? Yeah. Um, well, I, I do want to say that's everybody, even listeners, let's put this pressure on Watani to finish his story. Troy, me, is you it's on. On. It's on. Hey, brother. <laughs> Just a little pressure. We only need a couple of million people to listen to this <laughs> and spread the word and all get right. on you. Okay. That's all. Um, all right. No pressure at all. Thank you. So, yeah, I've always been interested in sharing my own story. I've always called myself a poet. You know, I I dabbled in in the times when everybody wanted to be a hip hop artist. You know, I went through that phase in my younger years. And but inside, I wanted to enhance my skills because what I wanted to do is put myself in a setting where I can actually get feedback from what I was writing. And I actually wanted to move away from just playing with words and rhyme as opposed to just really the prose of it, like really telling the story. And I think one of the biggest things I learned from being in the class is how to create a scene in a novel that allows you to slow down or speed up time or to direct somebody's attention by how much time you're giving to a particular subject or a particular scene. And I I think I really learned that from listening to people in the class. But also in truth, I think the entire class were was teachers. The way that the structure of the class was set up was that, you know, everybody gave feedback because I mean we know what sounds right to us. We know what sounds good or or not um to us. And getting that feedback from not only somebody who's 
the instructor who's a professional and knows what she's doing, but getting that feedback from your peers was even doubly important because those were the people who I saw as my audience. And I wanted to make sure that translation, you know, words sent was the message received. So yeah, I, I went to the class really just looking to enhance my writing ability. And then Watani was in the class. And so I thought I'd just <laughs> stay around. So I was curious to know if there was something that you learned about yourself in the process of writing your memoirs or your poetry or your story. For me, uh, all the way along the the journey, I've been learning and, you know, and uh, relearning. And it's just, it's just been a whole process has been a learning experience, the, the writing process for me. I think one thing that I also, where I've learned towards the end part of it is that how complex my story turned out to be. I mean, you know, when I first started writing, it was sort of black and white, I guess. I know what the facts are. I know what I'm going to challenge. I know, you know, so I, that part, but I, um, in that process, I found out how complex things are, how the world is, and you know, and I even up to the point like I was in uh, Zoe's class for those many years writing a story, and writing it was it took on a different form when I got out because once I got out, then all the complexity and everything that I thought I knew and everything I thought I you know I read and I you know I could write about. I found out there was so much more to it that I needed to get below the surface rather than, you know, staying on the surface of, of my story. And then I found out the little relationships, how important they are in telling the story. So anyway, the, the learning process for me became more and more complex. So I, I've learned along the way my writing and getting out. I learned to appreciate the complexity. Of right. Embrace the complexity. And by doing that, it allowed me to really see things from a whole different, it's like almost writing a, another book Why mm-hmm. I use this as an excuse of why it's taking me so long to finish the book. <laughs> because after I got out, then, you know, the, the chapters just kept getting longer and longer. More stories came up, a lot of stuff that I thought I knew that I didn't know. Then also I was engaging in, you know, various kind of convers- conversation with different people with different perspectives. So that mm-hmm. also caused me to stop and to add something at another uh, aspect to my writing. So that's what I look for now. I look for those, the complexity of the story. And it's Mm -hmm. intriguing to me more so than before. It was like, it was in my way when I was writing inside, but getting outside, those complexity, you know, if I can just pull on this thread, if I can just tie this thread up to this, and then I'm going back on my story that I've written when I was inside and I see that, this is related to that. And my story has a this big overarching theme to it. But I had to realize, look, this story will never end if I don't end it. Right. So what I decided to do is to turn one book into two books. The first book yeah. is titled Something More Precious Than Freedom. And that's deals with, you know, my coming into the movement, you know, my activism, uh, my prison experience, my exile experience and all the way up to coming back to prison in this new world of what prison has become since 
Um, I leaving after 20 years away. So I decided to cut it off once I got paroled and I'm entering into this new world that I haven't been on the streets of this country in like almost 50 years. So and I figured this is a good way to start it, you know, mm-hmm. to start the second book. And the second book I entitled To Stumble Is Not To Fall. That comes from an African proverb, to stumble is not to fall, only to move forward fast. And this sort of highlights my life in terms of all the mistakes and the twists and turns and the things that I knew and but stumbling but not falling, getting back up, learning from those mistakes and moving forward. So this is like I said, the second book. I'm at the end of the first book, thanks to to Zoe's pressure. I'm looking forward to finishing that book uh um well would have been twenty one, so it'd be two thousand twenty two, definitely. And uh, so okay. I'm, I'm finishing that book up. And then the second book, I have all the, the little threads and stuff that it shouldn't take <laughs> that many years to finish the second book. That's That's been my process of learning and uh, and really the, just learning along the way. It's not just one major, one big blast of revelation about, you know, I've got it figured out because uh, I, I figure out that there's so much that I don't know and so much that I still need to learn and I'm always learning. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I was listening to you guys talk about going through your creative process and the types of work that you do. And I was wondering within that process, if there was something that you learned about yourself that kind of stands out. Yeah. um, I learned how to speak my truth in a way that cannot be disputed. I learned that people can debate facts and perspectives all they want to, but what can never be debated is my experience of those facts or perspectives. And I learned to speak from that voice, right? And so I need to actually start working on the books. Absolutely. But I utilize most of my skill set. I utilize in the public speaking arena. And I think I've learned to be pretty adept at the creation of a story, of my story in in real time. Because there's so many ways in which like you can tell your story. Every time I go to tell my story, I have to choose from the thousands of ways in which I want to relay it, depending on who I'm speaking to, right? And because there's yeah. a point that I actually want to emphasize to them. And I like to think I become pretty adept, you know, at being able to do that. And I, I actually credit a lot of that with sitting in the Brothers in Pen class, you know, among other things, experiences that I was able to have with learning, writing, acting, you know, self-help groups and, you know, the rest of it is really just how to shape my story, like I said, in a way that you can't dispute my experience of of my life. And that's it. As they say, unapologetically. (laughs) (laughs) That's so powerful. And I mean, it speaks to both of your commitment to the craft of writing that, um, well, A, you would you would um, subject yourself to, to getting that feedback. <laughs> exactly. It's a testament to Zoe. I know when I don't get good feedback yeah. on stuff, it's actually more disappointing. It hurts a little bit to get that feedback because you're just like, damn, you know, like you feel like it's your child, like, and they're just like chipping away at it. But really, I think that is the testament of a great teacher that they give good feedback because that's yeah. how you get better. And, to, and not everybody... <laughs> Yeah, and not everybody can give it. Right, exactly. I mean, that was the beauty of the class is that, like, we all, we figured out a way to to give it in a way that 
that was less likely to arise those, you know, feelings of shame or emotions that right. come up when people give you feedback. And if you wanted to be in the class, this is what you have to do. Like this is part of it. Right. And so right. it's the price you pay. And then to see the others who had already been in the class, to see that work. And you had people who were in the class it's, that were very right. well respected, you know, and such as Watani, you know, people in the class who were very well respected, then people are more inclined to come in and say, okay, this is the program. If I want to get to this level, this is what I have to do. Yeah. It's part of the process. Even yeah. your instructor, you yeah. know, if she's going to publish something, she will get feedback. Right. Yeah. Uh, thank you for, if Zoe had to come in, you know, and form the class, like a traditional uh, writing class where you do it, but she came in. So it really is run as a, a workshop. Actually, mm -hmm. so everyone gives feedback, everyone, you know, be able to, you know, positive feedback and, you know, some critical feedback, but feedback nevertheless that people would take and, you know, we can see each other grow and then gain, you know, gain inspiration in seeing each other. And it's not everyone write about it. You know, I write a memoir. Troy was writing about his, his experience uh, in L.A. and he wrote several uh, short pieces. So we got a chance to know where the passion is and uh, how to give feedback, you know, because that, that was also a learning process. How do you give feedback? And so the class run completely different from like your traditional academic. If that had happened, Zoe and I would have had bigger problems than we had. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Zoe. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the traditional classroom format is the teacher has all the knowledge, but the workshop is you, you have the knowledge, you know what your story is. And so it's just a way of getting it to come out of you okay. in a way that your audience can connect with. And I, I think that's the, if I dare say, the brilliance of Zoe <laughs> being able to, to create that environment. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think that speaks volumes because, you know, traditional, you know, people who come in and just they got all the answers. Uh, they're not getting a piece of me. I'm just I'm just not going to do it. You know, you can do it with other people. Fine. But you're not you're not going to get a piece of me like that. No, nah, you won't. <laughs> you won't get Troy. You can get Charles and Craig and, and Pookie and Ray Ray, but you're not going to get Troy. You're not getting Troy. <laughs> Well, okay, speaking of work, I wonder if um, each of you has something that you'd like to share with our listeners, some piece of creative writing, either that you've created or something that inspires you that you'd like to, to share with folks. Watani, you want to go first? Okay, after I got out, that's where I started writing. So this is after I got out, some, some of the things I discovered. After being reincarcerated for 21 more years in 2015, I was finally released from San Quentin State Prison. I quickly learned that prison provide a buffer between you and your relationship with your children. You write letters, you send cards, remember birthdays and holidays, talk over the phone. You try to stay connected and in some kind of a relationship with them. But when you are released from prison, that buffer is no longer there. You now have access to all their emotions, their pain, their fears, and their anger. I felt ambushed by my children. I could not understand for the life of me why my children were so angry and especially angry with me. While in prison, I had convinced myself 
that my situation with my children was different. I was in prison because of a sacrifice I'm, I had made for them. I came back to this country because I wanted a better life for them. I came back to prison because I loved my children more than I hated my incarceration. Shouldn't there be some degree of gratitude for my sacrifice? But I had to steady my spirit and realize that my story is not their story. I was somewhat surprised that my children born in South America don't seem to share my passion for fighting for racial justice in the United States. That they don't even see it's just injustice the way I do. Because of this, it throws into question my assumptions about how they thought about me when we were apart. I wonder what my children were thinking about me when they were in foster care so young and knowing so little of my story and what had happened to me. Why was I in prison? What was their narrative about me? After all, they didn't grow up in this country. That wasn't the social context they were immersed in. They had no conception of the rising intensity of racial antagonism within this country that continues today. Nor had they ever heard of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X. All that my children knew was that they had a loving father. And then he left. And when he left, things turned into a nightmare. As a young activist fighting for social justice during the tumultuous Black Power era of the 1960s, I was focused on wanting to make a difference for the very reason of wanting children, my children, everyone's children, to be able to grow up in a just and safe world. I had a big picture view, a revolutionary vision that was a kind of love for them. Would I do it all again the same way, knowing the huge emotional toll it has taken on my children? I was not there when they needed me most. But my choice was not just about making a difficult decision to join the struggle for social change. It was also about a racist system and the actions of COINTELPRO that limited my choices. I can't honestly say that there are no regrets, but if I had to do it all over again, I would. However, this time, I would be mindful of the collateral damage done to my children. I would never forsake or take for granted the small picture for the big picture. In a strange way, the ironic outcome of me not being there for them is that my children don't see or understand the issues like they might have if I had been teaching and dialoguing with them all those years. Sadly, but truthfully, being in prison for so many years, separating them from their children is the plight of so many black and brown fathers. Because my life was sacrificed for the struggle, for the big picture, I didn't get to raise my own children to see critical social issues like I would want them to. And in fact, a few of my children 
have some beliefs that are really shocking to me. That is a hard outcome to have given my life for the struggle. A thing that felt so poignant to me was that one of my daughters, who was pregnant with her unborn son, proclaimed passionately how she would never abandon her children. She would care for him above and beyond any and everything else. Unlike me, she would always be there for him to comfort, protect, and support him in all his dreams and aspirations. For my daughter, there is no issue more compelling and important to her than raising her child. She says, I can name a million and one incidents where I would rather have had you there than you being where you were because of what you were doing for the revolution. So like I said, Dad, the price you paid was not worth it. It's not that I don't care. I just care more about my child. I realized that my daughter was just as passionate about her unborn child as I was in my passion for racial and social justice in this country. But I also understand that if the society in which she lives in is not just and sees her son, my grandson, as less than all the love she pours into him and all the protection she offers will not be enough. She will long for changes in society so that he can thrive and grow in the ways every mother wants to see. It feels tenderly naive to me that she would think that she on her own can make his world. Of course, she can do a lot but he will have to grow up and live in this society. She can choose him above everything else, but he and all of us still need activists fighting for justice for as long as there is injustice. My grandson also needs the racial and social justice work I care about. If I have come to any conclusion at all about family and social struggle, it is this. It is not a question of either or, but must be a balance of both and. My hope for my grandson is that he demands and deserves a world where justice prevails and Black lives truly matter. Wow. Really powerful. Snaps. Snaps. Yes, 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 yes. Wow, Watani. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's the second book. Don't look for it in the first book. That door is closed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Boom. Closed. Got it. Wow. Thank you. Wow. That was powerful, brother. That was that was dang near tear jerking right there. That was powerful. It was. It was. All right, Troy, you, oh, you can follow that up. No, you should let me go first. Goodness. Man, <laughs> why you do that to me, brother? I thought, we, I thought you liked me. Got stories in there, Joey. Don't, don't try it. Joey got you, too. Uh, this, was, this was called Why Me. I'm going I'm to take y'all straight to the block on this one. Chapter one. An all-black crash at 300, cruising down the boulevard, turned right on a side street. 
the Chrysler could have been an ambassador's vehicle, like the kind you see in the presidential motorcade, except it sat on 22-inch chrome rims that resembled form crosses. The windows were tinted smoke black. Flags affixed to the attendants mounted on the front of both sides of the automobile flapped in the wind. The same flag hung from both sides. It was blue on the left, right on the red. A shepherd's staff and flail intersected the center. Conscious rap music thumped from the vehicle like a concert on wheels. A poetic example of mountains to climb on the block with a clock laying in the cut. Weed smoke in my lungs, Hennessy in the cup. Filled for disregard for all laws given. 360 degrees of cap killing. Our mamas didn't have too many sleepless nights. Soldiers to the front line, we headed for new heights. The blind can't see, change gonna take more than talking. No justice, no peace for a bunch of dead men walking. Caught up in the belly of the beast on a street corner called murder and deceit. Having visions like Nebuchadnezzar, I tell you no lie, of untimely deaths and lives institutionalized. The Chrysler traveled down the side street about a block and a half and pulled up on the wrong side of the street and slowed down as if to double park in front of a small apartment complex. There were about 30 or 40 people, males and females, ages 14 to 40, out and about the complex. A group of teenagers and 20-year-olds were huddled in the back of the long driveway in a circle, passing blunts around. Another group was passing around 40-ounce bottles of Old English. A group of OGs, men and women, were sitting out front in lowriders and SUVs, smoking weed and drinking Hennessy out of paper cups. No one recognized the mysterious car, and any car passing through that no one recognized always catches everybody's attention. Drive-bys and gun plays were common occurrences in this neighborhood. Enemies had been known for using fancy rides to catch homies slipping. As the Chrysler slowed to a stop, several thuggish-looking men cautiously approached the vehicle, their hands clenched pencils tucked in their waistbands as they actively scanned the vehicle, searching to identify friend or foe. Simultaneously, the driver's side window and music volume coming from the car went down. As the window began to lower, one man physically pulled his 9mm Glock from his waistband and aimed it at the vehicle. Everyone was tense and on high alert. No one was taking any chances. One of the young men bolted from the back of the apartment complex with an AK-47 and took aim at the car. An OG held his hand out, signaling to the youngster, hold on, wait and see, he said. It's me, a voice inside the Chrysler yelled quickly, but calmly attempted to identify himself before the youngster's trigger-happy finger itched. Who's me? The young man with the AK-47 inquired aggressively, almost looking for a reason to shoot. Tim, the driver responded, sticking his head out the window so he could be seen. Oh, what's up, cuz? Relieved, everybody put their weapons away and gathered around to greet Tim. Some admired his new car. Some spoke and went back to doing what they were doing. The young man with the AK-47 departed to return the rifle to his hiding place. When you get this, one homie asked enviously, about two weeks ago. Man, that's tight, another homie exclaimed proudly. Tim put his car in park, stepped out and shook hands and embraced a few homies, hugged a few homegirls, and gave a few head nods. Tim's ex-girlfriend, Aisha, pushed through the crowd. She grabbed him sexually around the neck, practically squashing him between her and the car. You gonna take me out? You know I still love you. Yeah, right, Tim countered with distrust. You know I'm fixing to get married. Squeezing tighter, she seductively ground her pelvis against his and coaxed temptingly 
one last time before you put on that ball and chain. Then she turned around, reached behind her with both hands and gripped the sides of her pants and gyrated her backside. Tim pulled away and took a step to the side. We ain't going there, Idisha. And for the record, it ain't no ball and chain. Yo lost, she snapped in a sexy tone and strutted away, swinging her hips back and forth like a supermodel on a runway. Tim turned to a youngster as if to ignore her and asked, Where Neff at? He upstairs. Get him for me, Tim asked, then continued conversing with others. The youngster walked beneath the window of the room where Neff was and called out as loud as he could, Neff, hey Neff. Neff stuck his head out the window. What's up, cuz? Tim out here. He immediately noticed Tim and the Chrysler. Damn, is that yours? He yelled down to Tim. Yeah, come roll with me. Hold up, Neff shouted anxiously. Neff was a 24-year-old veteran of street life. Mad at the world, he started gangbanging at the early age of 13. He was on the run for second-degree murder at the age of 14 and spent the ages of 15 to 21 in youth authority. By the time Neff came out front, Tim had turned the car around and was leaned back in the driver's seat, backed into the driveway, still talking with homies. As Neff opened the passenger's door to get in, Tim questioned, you dirty? I got a joint. That's on you? That's on you, but I believe. But leave the strap here, though. Oh, man. Tim laughed. You don't need it where we going. Neff looked worried, but Tim assured him, don't trip. I got you. Neff turned around and handed over his gun to Blue Rag, his 17-year-old brother. Put this up for me. As he got in the car, a 14-year-old, everyone called badass, ran around to the driver's side. I want to go. Ask your mama. His mother was sitting in one of the lowriders, drinking and smoking with the homies, listening to Mary J. Blige's song entitled The Father and You. She quickly gave him permission to go. Badass got in the car and they pushed off. Tim cranked up the music as they rolled out the driveway. That's amazing. To be continued. <laughs> to be continued. Exactly. <laughs> when you publish your book. <laughs> right. But it's so vivid. Your imagery, you put us yes. like right there on the block. I was totally there. Right. Waiting for Neff to come downstairs. <laughs> I was like, ooh, this is not going <laughs> to... That was the goal. This whole story, just in a nutshell, it tells a story about the guy Tim clearly has transformed his life, but he had a commitment to come back to try to change his hood. And the whole story, right. like it tells, his feelings about why me? Why yes. Why am I the one mm -hmm. for this mission? Right. Right. Yeah. And it has a lot of twists and turns to it, too. Yeah, it got a whole lot of twists and turns. <laughs> And both of your stories, you know, make us ask questions of ourselves. Hard questions. You're asking yourselves hard questions. Your characters are asking hard questions. It makes you really think. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Well, Troy, um, you said that, well, actually, Zoe said that you wrote your chapters based on prompts that Zoe had given. Do you remember what the prompt was for this chapter, Troy? I don't remember exactly what the prompt was, but I think it had to do something with a guy pulling up in a car and picking somebody up or something like that. I think that's right. And I think you were supposed to include something that was on the radio. Right. Exactly. That's why I put the poetry in there. Ah. Okay. So one of the things that we're doing is asking our guests to provide a prompt to our listeners. So Zoe, do you want to sort of like recreate a prompt from this for folks? Yeah, I think I'm going to give the prompt that was the first one that I gave to the class after lockdown, after we hadn't been in person for almost a year and a half. 
So this was um, June 30th of this year. And the, and the prompt is um, write a scene or story in which a group of people who haven't seen each other in person in a long time have a reunion. Somewhere in the story, include a handwritten page with coffee stains. So that's, there you go. <laughs> that is a very interesting element to put in there. Yeah, I like the generality of it and then the specificity. That's what I, I always try and do my prompts like that. And it's, it's interesting how those little specific details work their way into the story and they always come out in the most interesting ways, the way people work those little specific uh, details in. So, yeah, I had gotten a story returned uh, from someone because I was working with everyone through the institutional mail during lockdown. Mm -hmm. And um, one guy always turned in his stuff that came to me. It always was had coffee stains all over it. And so, <laughs> so that's what that's what made, made me think of that one. Yeah. Good one. Life imitates art, imitates life. <laughs> imitates life. Yeah. The story behind this coffee stains. <laughs> Well, Troy, Zoe, Watani, it's been such a pleasure talking with each of you. And thank you so much for sharing your stories with us as well. They were phenomenal. And I'm sure that they alone will inspire people to continue to write more. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners about writing or the writing process? I'll say the writing process, I'll say what Zoe uh, insisted on when we first got in this to sit down and, and look at the paper if you don't have anything to write, but always use that as a practice to uh, show up. Yes, show up, mm -hmm. yeah, at the very least. Half the battle. Troy? Exactly, that's it. And, you know, do the Nike symbol. Like, just do it right. Like, you know, I, I feel like I want to channel Yoda right now. There's nothing to fear but fear itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> just right. even if it's just five minutes, like just sit down. Don't think about what you're going to write. Don't think about how it's going to turn out. Don't think about how people going to take it. Don't think about none of that. Just let's let it flow. Whatever come out, it come out and then you can reshape it later if you decide to, but get just, once you get in the habit of letting that create creative energy flow, it's going to take you such a long way. Just let them creative juices flow. Absolutely. That is an awesome motto for us and for our podcast. Thank you so much. Let the creative juices flow. Thank you all. You're welcome. Right. So there was these two podcast hosts, right? And they were walking down the street. Dot, dot, dot. To be continued. To be continued. Until next time. <laughs> You've been listening to Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by the Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at three CSU campuses. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. If you'd like to respond to this week's prompt, send an email to packradio4 at gmail.com. That's P-A-C radio and the number four at gmail.com with the subject line outside inside prompt. 
We'll select responses to be broadcast on the show during the season. We look forward to hearing from you.